This episode was first recorded in November 2017. Ed Fear, what is your favourite game? My favourite... Oh, wait, no, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> I've forgotten already. <laughs> what do I say? Ed Fear, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is Xenogears. I guess I got started playing games um, when uh, I I had uh, I had friends uh, when I was maybe like five or six. I had friends that lived on my street that had uh, uh, an NES, and uh, and I remember going to one of the houses and playing the first Mario, which came out the year I was born, nineteen eighty five. So it would have been a bit after the fact, really. Uh, but I remember playing the first Mario and just not really being able to comprehend how incredible it was that I was controlling what was going on on the screen. Like to me, TV had always been something that you watched and I was suddenly like, wait, I'm controlling it. And it was just the most magical thing I'd ever seen in my life. And, um, and from that moment on, I was just completely, completely hooked. Whenever I went to friends' houses, all I wanted to do was play on their, uh, their consoles or their computers um and i eventually convinced my parents to get me to get me an nes um and it just went from there i just became a complete um just a complete addict really um and uh like, yeah like what games did you get for your nes obviously mario would have been one of them yeah Mar- so mario was definitely a big one i remember playing a lot of mario 2 as well and obviously mario 3 when that came out um uh, I was a big fan of Zelda, obviously, the first Zelda. Uh, nev- I only ever played Zelda 2 when I was at, at my cousin's house, and I was like, no, I don't think this is the game for me, which you know, I later learned was what a lot of people felt about that one. Um, but uh, yeah, I th- so like Zelda, um, there was a really weird Capcom platformer that my friend had called uh, Little-, Little Nemo in Dreamland. Um, which was this like super hardcore platformer that was really surreal, um, but we were com- we were addicted to it. And it was so hard, but I can remember we used to play it for hours and hours, and then like leave it on overnight so that the next morning we could play again because you know it was obviously before um, save states and things like that. Uh, and I remember once my my uh, my mum went away on a holiday. My mum and dad went away, and I went to stay with my auntie and uncle, and to make me like miss them less i guess they uh bought me a, they just bought me a game they bought one completely at random they had no idea what was good and they bought uh mega man 2 um and that was like that was a huge like awakening that was um the idea that, that like a game wasn't a linear sequence of levels and that you could choose which level you uh you you tackled in each order and then each level made you stronger for the other ones. Um, I remember being like quite blown away um, by that. I think, um, 
And then after the NES, I went on to... Uh, I betrayed Nintendo and went uh, Sega. Um, I know, I know. So I got uh, Mega Drive uh, because I was a really big Sonic fan. Like, I loved Sonic. Um, and uh, it was just something about the speed and the insanity of it just um, kind of mesmerized me a little bit. Um, but yeah, I didn't really have that much on the Mega Drive because, you know, looking back, there wasn't really that much. <laughs> There wasn't really that many amazing games on the Mega Drive. Um, I uh, I used to love Sonic Spinball, which was a terrible game, objectively. Um, but uh, I used to play it a lot. And uh, Street Fighter 2 was a big one that I used to play all the time as well. And uh, that was a game that even got my brother uh, playing with me. My brother and sister are, are much older than me, and they've never really been into games. Um, but Street Fighter was always one that... Um, that I could get my brother to play with me. And um, and so that was a lot of fun. Um, and then after the Mega Drive, I went to PlayStation, so I betrayed Sega. Uh, obviously, what we're learning is that I'm a turncoat. <laughs> um, and we'll just uh, flip-flop around at will. Um, but yeah, PlayStation was what I consider my like golden era of gaming, PlayStation 1. Um, I think it's partly because it was that it was the age I was at the time, which would have been, you know, between about probably like 13 and no, probably younger than that, like 12 and 16, I guess was kind of the PlayStation era for me. So that would, to me was the time that um, like the real possibilities of games opened up to me. Like um, I remember playing the first, I remember playing Parappa the Rapper and just being like, I had no idea that a game could be like this. Um, and just finding it so weird. And that was another one that my brother and even my sister really got, really loved Parappa the Rapper because it was so surreal and weird and accessible. Um, and, uh, but you know, the real, the real game, the real one game that got me, uh, in my PlayStation days was the one that a lot of people will say, and that's Final Fantasy seven. Um, because, that game just hit me like a bolt out of the blue. Um, I'd never heard of, like most people in Europe, I'd never heard of the franchise before. Um, and, you know, it, it. I remember reading about it in a magazine and just being like, oh, yeah, you know, this this seems this, this seems like it could be really fun and, like, really looking forward to it. But just, like, being just completely blown away, like every five minutes by that game because it was just like it was so cinematic and the story was so powerful i mean to me at the time at least and you know i had no idea that games could have those kinds of um stories you know and and give you that kind of long experience in a way so that was really my first um rpg i think um you know i played games like zelda and zelda 64 and stuff but you know, Final Fantasy was 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 a very different beast. You know, it's the the archetypal JRPG, and um, yeah, that that basically um, that set off my love uh, for that genre, which um, has pretty much continued to this day. Like I, I would have said, like before, with the games you mentioned, like the original Mario and Mega Man, and like at least in part with Zelda, that you would have had. 
a sort of platforming love at first before jumping into like your love of RPGs. I think that would have been at least somewhat fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was yeah, even going into the even going into the PS One. I think my first one of my one of the games I got with my PS One was a game called Pandemonium, which was a platformer by Crystal Dynamics, um, and it was a two point five D platformer, so it was three D. Uh, but like in one plane, but the plane kept on moving. And that was another one of those like, what the hell moments, you know, that, um, that really, uh, that really got me. And I'd also was a big fan of the first Tomb Raider as well. The first, the first Tomb Raider was the first game I played where, which I guess you could kind of say has a lot of platforming elements to it. Um, and that was the first game I played that had, where I really felt the sense of a three dimensional, space i think it's the bit at the very beginning where you can swim through an underground tunnel and that was the moment where i was like oh my god this is a whole nother like dimension and um you know a lot of people attribute um you know mario 64 as being the game that first kind of made you understand how incredible 3d could be um and maybe because i didn't have an n64 at at the time for me it was tomb raider and i remember speaking about this with terry pratchett um and he he had said exactly the same the tomb raider was his first game that he really understood uh what 3d movement could kind of the sense it could give you of exploring a place um and i remember being like oh my god you're the only other person that's ever said that to me (laughs) that that's insane like there was a lot of 3d platformers that since mario that would have I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just babbling at this point, but I kind of do get your point. Anyways, but like, I I never got an N64, so I I can't really talk about Mario 64 in the same vein that everyone else has. Like, yeah. for me, like for me, that kind of big 3D explosion was the original Crash Bandicoot. And that was when I got my PlayStation about 20 years ago. It was actually 20 years ago, Christmas actually, and I and like I remember just being so amazed by what games have been able to do even up to that point because even before I got my PlayStation I was like playing Donkey Kong on a Game Boy like and it was like you know it was, it was fine it was good but then having that kind of explosion over from you know, you know green yeah. pixely 2D screen up into this colourful 3D world with Crash I can honestly see why there was such a such a massive explosion of sorts and it is in terms of what could be possible with the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Crash yeah, Crash Bandicoot was those those levels where you were running into the screen, right? Those were the they I mean they were really annoying as hell, but they were also like, Whoa you know, this is three D. Exactly. You know, like it it really um it really yeah, I mean even though you were really only playing those in a two D plane it still felt very 3D. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crash Bandicoot was definitely. I remember. I remember really, really looking forward to um, that game, Croc. Because <laughs> uh. <laughs> I remember looking at the previews of it and being like, "Yeah, finally, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a game like Mario 64 on the PlayStation. It's going to be amazing." And then playing the demo and just being like, "No." Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the days of the the you know the, the PlayStation demo disc. 
um, which again I used to love. I was a huge magazine reader, gaming magazines. I like um, was obsessed with games magazines, and I would just buy as many as I possibly could, um, and especially for demo discs. You know, I just, I loved demo discs. I I have a weird. There's a weird. I was, wish I still have them in in a way um, because they're like a time capsule. You know. Mm. Um, of the games that were big at that point, uh, and there was and there were so many demos that I used to just play again and again and again. I used to love the PlayStation ones because they had the the Net Eurose games on them, mm. yes, as well. Uh, and I actually had a Net Eurose. Um, uh, I only the, I only ever got as far as making a uh, a Space Invaders clone um, using pictures that I ripped out of South Park. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it, it, but it ran, it ran on, you know, it ran on a PlayStation. I felt pretty proud of myself. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, the games, those sort of games that people would make, sometimes there'd just be this random game on there and it would just be insanely good. Um, you know, it was like the indie scene before the indie scene happened in a way. <laughs> Dear God, I, 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 yeah, and that Yahtzee game with South Park, that would have been an amazing scene. <laughs> <laughs> Should, should have released that as a homebrew. I should have really. I, I I can't remember. I think I was obsessed with learning how to do 3D, and so I just dropped it after a while. Um, but that's that was the first time I learned how difficult 3D programming was. Um, and uh, and yeah, it, that trying to do that basically killed any remaining interest I had. I think, um, which was a bit of a shame. Um, but yeah. Uh, the best, also the best thing. So, this, so this is very relevant, actually. The best thing about the Net Eurosi was that it was a region-free PlayStation One. Yes, that's right. Um, and that's how I, and once I got that, I started importing. Um, after playing Final Fantasy Seven, I started importing. I started learning more about JRPGs in general because I hadn't known anything about this genre, and I started going on the internet. It's you know dial-up at the time. Cool. And um, and going to loads of forums and uh, and you know for, for RPG fans and learning about all of these games that um, were like Final Fantasy that I hadn't played and you know whenever one would come out in Europe which they started doing after Final Fantasy VII proved so insanely popular I'd buy it and they'd never quite be as good as a Final Fantasy you know because the the budgets would have been much smaller or whatever. But um, through these like forums and stuff, I would learn about all the games that were coming out in America. And in those days, so many more JRPGs came out in America um, than ever came out in Europe. So I started importing them. Hmm. Um, so uh, I think the first one I imported was Final Fantasy VIII, which I had like you know six months before anyone in England or whatever. I think that was the first one. Then like Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, and some other stuff, and I and I had a friend uh, who also got into JRPGs about the same time from Final Fantasy VII, and so we would kind of import different games and then like swap them or tell each other about them. Um, and he uh, he was the one that bought Xenogears, um, and he bought it and he played it and he I remember he gave it to me and he was like, "You really really need to play this game. It's like it's just." insane um and i was like oh, okay yeah whatever you know not really thinking much of it and then i actually got into it and 
Uh, I don't think I don't think I ever gave it back. <laughs> it was just too special to me after that. I, weirdly, when I was about thirteen or fourteen, I, I I think I I did. I have really hazy memories, but I did write some reviews for some websites, some small ones, where they would send me the games. And I remember thinking I was the king of the hill, you know, because I was like, yeah, I'm 14. People are sending me games and I'm, and, and you know, I wasn't getting paid. But, you know, to a 14-year-old, just getting the game for free was pretty awesome. Um, and, uh, and then I basically, uh, I decided I wanted to get into games development partly because of uh, a few games that really... Um, like opened my eyes to the possibilities of the medium, um, which you know, uh, like Final Fantasy VII, like Xenogears, like um, Silent Hill Two, which I'm sure we'll touch upon later. Um, but I always thought I was going to be a programmer, um, and uh, that's when I—that's how—that's why I got the the Net Eurozo, you know, to learn programming and stuff like that. And um, uh, and then I was at—I uh, decided to go to university. Um, and I decided to study, uh, well, I was, it was always assumed I'd do computer science. Um, but I didn't kind of didn't really want to, cause I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of sounds a bit dull. And also I know a lot of it already cause I self self taught programming so many years ago. So I took, so I took a, uh, I did a joint honors degree that was, uh, half computer science and half Japanese. Um, because I'd been playing one of these JRPGs and I was like, hey, you know, this this country makes pretty cool stuff. It would be pretty cool to be able to play the games before they even get translated into English, you know. Um, so, yeah, I went to university. And I, uh, uh, but again, I was expecting to get into the industry uh, as a programmer. Um, and then in my final year, I was talking to a... Uh, a good friend that I'd known for many years, um, Simon Parkin, um, just one day on MSN Messenger, and he was like, have you ever thought about trying games journalism? And I was like, no, not really. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I've seen your forum posts. I've, you know, I've, you know I, I, I know you could do it if you wanted to. And I just really, even though I'd done it before, when I was much younger, I hadn't really ever thought about doing it again. So I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll keep that in mind. And then weirdly, a friend of mine got a job on a blog, um, the website Pocket Gamer, which uh, now is a relatively big website. Um, but back then, was a re- that was when it had just launched, and it was, you know, mobile phones weren't really a gaming platform at that point. Um, and they had a blog which they were trying to trying to launch. And my, yeah, like I said, my friend got offered some work on it, and so I emailed the guy uh, who was running it, and I was like, "Hey, um, how about I do some stuff for your blog as well? Um, I can I can read Japanese, so how about I like you know summarize articles from Famitsu uh, and write them into posts?" And he was like, "Yeah, okay, cool." And I remember he paid me five pounds per post, which obviously not great <laughs> looking back. Um, but it kind of got started, and then and then they started up the website proper, um, and that was with a lot of um, Pocket Gamer was launched by a lot of uh, old Edge people. So it was um, 
So the guy that was working the blog was Owen Ben. It was a guy called Owen Benelak. And then they said, "Do you want to go? Do you want to start working on the main site and doing some reviews? And we'll send you the games, and we'll obviously pay you a lot more than five pounds a post." And that guy, uh, the guy that was running that, was um, Joao Diniz Sanchez, uh, who used to be the editor of Edge. And I remember, and I was such a huge fan of Edge when I was like fifteen, sixteen. Um, I would read it, and I thought it was so, you know, grown up and and uh, and and interesting, and and really looked at games like they were a proper thing. Um, and he was like, yeah, do you want to, like, try doing a review? And I was terrified because I was like, oh, my God, he really knows what he's doing. Uh, so anyway, I did it. Um, and, and that kind of grew into a much longer thing during my final year of university where I was doing a lot of this uh, this 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 work for Pocket Gamer, um, you know, paying my way through university without having to leave bed, which was basically the dream. Um and uh, and then about two months before I finished university, I saw a job opening at um, Develop Magazine, um, which closed down today, which is a weird turn of events. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I saw they had that, and I thought, well, I do really want to get into development, but um, this could be interesting, and this could get me to a lot of conferences and meet a lot of people. So I went for the job. Uh, I got offered it. Um, and basically I was offered a job before I did my final exam. So at that point I was like, well, I'd be an idiot not to take a job because I was really worried about what I was going to do after I finished university. Um, so I did that, uh, moved to Hertfordshire to do that. Um, only really intended to stay six months while I found a job, proper job in the industry, proper job would be a term I would have used then, not now. Um, I ended up staying there for about three years um, because it was just great. I mean, it was, um, you know, I got to go to GDC and um, uh, I think I went like four times. I was flying around the world just, just so many times and got to meet incredible people and interview like my heroes. And, you know, I got to shake hands with Kojima. I remember that. That was pretty cool. Um, I got to... Uh, I got to interview people like Warren Spector, who I respected so much um, for what he'd done on like Deus Ex and stuff like that. Um, and just so many other people. I, it, it Basically, it was just, yeah, it was like, um, it was crazy looking back. Um, but eventually I got tired of, of that and actually wanted to get into the, the industry. So I moved to, I moved over to Curve Studios uh, who are now Curve Digital, like an indie publisher. But back then they were a, a developer rather than a publisher. Uh, and I worked there doing some PR stuff for their first um, self-published game. And while I was there, I also got to... I basically volunteered to write all of the games that they were making at that point. Because I really wanted to get into game writing, um, uh, but I really didn't really know how to do it. Um, and, talk and, so, about, and talk about biting off more than you can chew. I don't know. It's like taking on all the games right in there at the time. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it, I was there two years, and I, and it was. I, I mean, I, yeah, I wrote I wrote three games, and they all launched launched within about the first eighteen months. Um, I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of text in a lot of them, but it was basically what happened was that um, I just kind of let them know that I was interested in that. But then I remember. 
uh, they published a game called Explodemon, which was the game I did a lot of PR on uh, and all kinds of production-y things. Um, and they were like, they were talking about hiring a, a writer and, and like being young and having no like crippling, um, you know, self-doubt, <laughs> which I've learned, developed over time. I was like, hey, why don't you let me, rather than hire someone, why don't you let me give it a go? Uh, and if you don't like it, then you can hire someone anyway. Um, but if you do like it, then you've saved money. Um, and, you know, saying that to uh, to an independent developer is like, that's exactly what they want to hear. Um, so they were like, yeah, okay. Um, and then ended up doing uh, everything there. Yeah, like I say, worked on all of the, the games that they released. Um, I got to write the script for, uh, well, I co-wrote the script for uh, one of the Buzz games. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting because you got to write stuff that then Jason Donovan would then record and you'd get back and you'd be like, oh, okay, that's not how that line went at all, but I guess no one bothered to correct you. <laughs> um, and so you just have to go with it. Like, um, it was very strange. Um, but yeah, so I was at Curve for about two years and then I moved over to where I am now, which is Mediatonic. Um, because I, 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 that, even though I'd written all of the games there, I was primarily a producer at, at Curve, um, and I wanted to get more into the creative side of things, and there wasn't really much opportunity to do that at Curve. So Mediatonic uh, headhunted me and said, you can do more creative things. And I was like, well, that sounds exactly like what I want to do. Um, so I did that, and I worked on... Uh, uh, I worked on a Moshi Monsters game for um, mobile phones that got cancelled after about a year. Um, that was with a Japanese company called Gree. Um, and then I started work on the game that I did with Square Enix Japan, um, Heaven Strike Rivals, uh, which took about three to four years of my life and left me a lot older and more tired, but very happy, very fulfilled, I, I will say. Um, uh, yeah, so, so that's why I, I did that, and then I've been working on various other things that have been cancelled over the years. Um, uh, and, that's, and that's how we get to today. Right, let's talk about your favorite game then, Xenogears or Xenogears, as I called. Is it like, is is it Xeno or Xeno? Does it really matter? Uh, it doesn't matter, but I will defend Xeno until the day I die. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, Americans call it Xenogears. Uh, in Japanese, it's Xenogears. Mm. Um, and I guess we would say Xeno because it's Xeno as in xenophobia. Ah. Um, uh, but Americans would say Xeno. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't really matter. But uh, but um, but yeah, I try and say Zeno. <laughs> it's 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 semantics, basically. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
so hands up, I've not played Xenogears. I've not even gone near it. Like so nope. if 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 I was someone coming in to Xenogears, if you had to pitch me on Xenogears, what would you give me as an elevator pitch to the game? Oh my god. Uh how would I do that? It's oh, that's so difficult. So first of all I would say it's no surprise you've not played it because not many people did. I think it sold about a million copies. It didn't come out in Europe anyway, uh, in the end. Um, so it, meeting somebody who's played Zenogears Gears is like an amazing um, uh, an amazing moment when you meet someone you're like, oh my god, you've played Zenogears! Gears! Oh my god! Uh, which is kind of a nice thing in some ways. Kind of like a giddy uh, feeling. Yeah, 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 it is. And you go, oh my god! Um, and uh, so Zenogears is a so what would I say? Zenogears is a uh, it's it's a it, I mean it's a JRPG, um, but it's one that is extremely uh, ambitious. Um, its scope is insane, um, and it's basically one of the most uh, detailed, confusing. Um, uh, exciting stories. Uh, it's, it's basically the 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 the, the thing. The, the wonderful thing about Xenogears is that um, so it's like you know every JRPG almost follows like a template in terms of the you know the um, the hero is in their village and then something goes wrong and then they are sent on an adventure um, in order to write a wrong or, or defeat an evil and then the world um, becomes a happy place again. And Xenogears is basically a game that turns all of that on its head. Uh, it starts out um, very uh, familiar in some ways um, in that it starts out with a, with a hero in a village but it very quickly um, takes it to much darker much more unexpected places um to the point where you know the moment in a jrpg when your hero kind of leaves the village and goes off on an adventure is like a in most jrpgs it's like a, is like a really um upbeat moment or not maybe not upbeat but it's like the start of an adventure and there's like um you know there's possibility in the air uh Zenigiz has your character leaving their village and almost basically committing suicide and uh yeah i mean as soon as you see basically once you get through the first hour of Zenigas, you will know whether it's for you or not because you will either be just completely gripped and emotionally um traumatized or you'll just be like no this is this is not like the game for me but yeah it, it basically it basically upends a lot of rpg traditions and it um it does a thing of that all rpgs do where it makes you feel you and your party feel like they're incredibly powerful and important people in this world and then xenogears is unique in that it then uh, does something that makes you feel like the tiniest of ants in the entire cosmos and um and, and it, it there's a, this moment where it like pans back and the picture is suddenly so much bigger than you ever could have comprehended um 
and that's kind of the moment that's kind of the the genius of this game is just its scale and its scope and just how ridiculously ambitious it is so it's like an it's like it's an rpg if you if you want to try something different and a little bit messed up i guess Hmm. And that's I, not that was a very long elevator ride it, it, it's it's definitely a fine elevator pitch in terms of length it's certainly shorter than the last episode I recorded before this anyways <laughs> um, and I'll touch back upon the ambition and scope of Xenoblade as, 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 dear god this is going to be a long episode especially with <laughs> Z- everything Xeno now you'll see why when we get to it but yeah. <laughs> It's going to be a long episode. But um, when I, we'll come back to the ambition and scope of uh, Gears in a minute. But I want to touch upon something that actually you mentioned before we started recording. Actually something I found out. And that is that uh, Gears was actually originally concepted by Tetsuya Takahashi as a pitch for Final Fantasy VII. That's right, yes. Um, so yeah, so Tetsuya Takahashi was the art director on Final Fantasy VI. Um, and a few other ge- uh, of the earlier uh, Final Fantasies before that, uh, and he got um, that. And there was uh, this other person that worked at Square Enix called uh, Soraya Saga, uh, and they uh, she worked on Final Fantasy VI as uh, a, a, an artist, and I believe an artist, and also uh, did some of the character design. Um, came up with the characters of Edgar and Saban, I think. Um, they uh, so uh, Tetsuya Takashi and Soraya Saga um, uh, ended up getting married, um, and uh, they came up with this uh, concept for uh, a get- Yeah, basically, Square Enix at that point didn't really know what Final Fantasy VII was going to be, and they had a couple of ideas. And they were generally they gem- they they opened it up to the company and said, "Look, if anyone's got any pictures for what." Um, what Final Fantasy VII could be, you know, we want to we want to hear them. So, um, so uh, Takahashi and um, and Soraya Saga uh, had, you know, been thinking of this idea for a while. Uh, I believe it was it started as, as Soraya Saga's idea about uh, uh, something about somebody giving birth to mankind, and then Tetsuya Takahashi took it and and kind of expanded it, and they worked on it together. And yeah, they proposed it. Um, as as a proposition for for Final Fantasy VII uh, to Hironobu Sakaguchi, um, you know the the head of uh, development at Square Enix at that point, um, and he said that it was too it was just too dark to be a Final Fantasy. Um, it was very sci- it's very science fiction orientated, um, and yeah, very dark. Um, and he said, look, you know, it's it's not right for a Final Fantasy, but um, how would you feel about um, starting up a new team and, um, and and having it be your directorial debut? Um, and so Takashi was like, yeah. So I, I believe the team was largely made up of the team that had just finished Chrono Trigger. Um, and yeah, uh, so they started working on, 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 on Xenogears. Um, and uh, I, I think it was like two, a two-year development. Nothing particularly crazy for the time. Um, but yeah, like it, it, um, it's, it's interesting when you know the game and you, 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 you think, yeah, it would be far too dark for a, for a Final Fantasy game. Um, but it's a testament to square, how Square operated at the time that 
anybody who had a good idea for something could just start, you know, start up a team and and make another JRPG. In those days, there was so much less risk on the line that they could take so many more chances. Like, say today, would that be able to work as a Final Fantasy game, like a hypothetical numbered Final Fantasy game, even 16? Well, can Xenogears be Final Fantasy 16? Possibly. I mean, the series is... The series has always changed over time, but I think it I think it would probably still be seen as a bit too sci-fi um, and maybe a bit too psychologically orientated, maybe. Um, it, it kind yeah, it does it does still feel quite different from Final Fantasy. It was kind of given given the opportunity to have its own identity and I don't, yeah, I don't know if it would fit in Final Fantasy because um, it, it's not afraid of doing some things that might turn you off if you're uh, like a, a somebody who just wants to play a generic JRPG, if you see what I mean. The second point of it being maybe too psychological, I can kind of get for sure, but like I think even with Final Fantasy, it's kind of gotten even in itself a little sci-fi now, even with stuff like 8 and even to a lesser extent 13. Yeah, that's very true. I think, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it did definitely go in a in a sci-fi direction anyway. Seven was definitely the start of that, you know, with 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 Midgar and uh, being that kind of massive uh, dystopian city kind of thing. Um, I think it's because Zenig is a, a large um, a large part of Zenig is is focused on these giant gigantic robots. Um, that the player has, um, which are called, which are the gears of the title. They're called gears, um, and so I think the fact that you are quite often fighting in a giant robot, and there's a lot of like, you know, flying through the air, and and I don't know, I I do know what you're saying, but at the same time, it's a di- it's kind of like a different kind of sci-fi. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Takahashi has always been kind of obsessed with like Gundam and those kind of robot animes. And it basically is a robot anime. I mean, a lot of, um, a lot of people at the time compared it to, uh, Evangelion, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yes. Um, which it does have quite a lot of similarities to, um, they came out like quite around the same time ish, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like they took something like a normal robot anime and then did, you know, some some much darker, um, introspective things with it. Really, it's the is I I guess you could I guess you could say that Zenig is is the Evangelion of JRPGs in that it's it's a bit too complex for its own good. It's obsessed with Christianity. Um, it's it it all of its characters have mental breakdowns. You know. Um, there's quite a lot of similarities, yeah. So, like, just to touch back on something that, <clears throat> excuse me, some, to touch back on something that you said earlier, like, you said it was extremely ambitious with an insane scope. Like, compared to other JRPGs at the time, like, compare and contrast, basically, and how that was with Xenogears compared to any other JRPG at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, JRPGs at the time had massive... I mean, they all had crazy scope, right? Like, if you... Oh, yeah. If you look back at how much stuff there was in Final Fantasy VII, you're just like, what? Which you know, which is why they're cutting it up into smaller bits to remake it because you couldn't, you just couldn't make a game that um, 
that dense anymore. Um, I don't know. I think um, the thing with Xenogears is that you constantly think that it's building towards an end, and then it will like it. Then it like pulls back a curtain that completely surrounded you, and suddenly you realise that there's so much else going on, and then it will do that again, and then it will do that again. Um, you know, I think the like just to do the main just to do the main story of Xenogears is about fifty hours. Um, and all of his characters have pretty deep, like, um, what we, you know, his characters have their own stories going on that nowadays we would put into like side quests or something like that. But in those days it was like, no, everything is part of the main story. And it just, it's like the first, the reason I say the scope is kind of crazy because like the first 25 hours of the game is almost inconsequential to the to the next 25 hours of the game because well not inconsequential but you just realize just how much bigger everything gets it's a really hard thing to describe but um but basically they um it's it's so big that they they ran out of money and time um and uh so it's on it's on two discs um disc one is about 30 35 hours and then disc two um so uh, this is quite interesting actually because um somebody asked Tetsuya Takahashi about this recently because he's doing the publicity circuit for Xenoblade Chronicles 2 um and he said that they yeah they basically completely ran out of money and Square said that um they should that they would have to end it at the end of disc one which by most game standards would have been like a nice kind of um like it would have been a good resolution. You would have felt like you'd achieved something and stopped, you know, saved the day and like all that kind of stuff. Um, but he was like, no, 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 that's not the story. Like the story has to, you know, go back to the beginning of time and go towards the end of time. It has to encompass everything. So disc, disc two is almost entirely the characters sat in rocking chairs um, narrating what what you should have been playing so they'd go like then they went to this dungeon and this happened <laughs> and then 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 we went to this dungeon and this happened and then you know like it just it's just like a text adventure um with like the core core bosses like they must have done the bosses already so the bosses are there but yeah they'll just like they'll just like talk for 10 minutes about places they went and things they did and then you'll fight a boss randomly and then They'll talk again. Um, so, yeah, it kind of disintegrates, which a lot of people don't like. I never had any problem with it because I was so invested with the story that I was like, hey, I'm getting concentrated story. I'm totally... I have no problem with this. Um, and they did it in a very kind of uh, way that fit in with the rest of the game. But, um, yeah, it's it's like... Basically, for the first... To 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 actually try, try and answer the question that you asked me in a succinct manner, the first twenty five hours of the game ish are about like a war between two nations, um, and and yeah, you get really involved in that, and you have a side, you know, and you are kind of fighting against this other side and stopping them from taking you over, and then there are these other countries that are getting involved, these aerial kingdoms that are getting involved on both sides. It's like this kind of political intrigue stuff going on. And, like, that's really great. 
but then at the end of that 25 hours it's like do you know how inconsequential it is that for 10 years these countries have been fighting it's like hell no now this story is going to be about the 10,000 years that happened before and how your character has um, been there since the beginning of time and you know like it just it, it, the way it expands is just crazy um, it's such a rush to kind of experience it because it's like it's suddenly like everything you think you know is just doesn't really matter at all um, and that could be quite annoying to be like well I've just spent all this time doing this but it's the kind of because um, kind of the key, one of the key themes of Xenogears is uh, the recurrence of the souls. So it's about kind of being reborn again and again, um, and you kind of come to realise that your characters have been born in similar guises throughout previous eras of history, um, right back to the moment of creation. Um, and you kind of realize who the real bad guy is essentially and uh yeah just that kind of the way it suddenly expands like that was was just like really intoxicating and uh, and they planned so and at the end of um Senegis, it does that kind of star wars thing by going this was episode 5 and then they did a book afterwards um that kind of explained that there were these, like, Xenogates was one part of a six-part story. Um, and there were, like, f- there, yeah, there were four before it, which the game kind of touches upon, but there's far more to go into it. There's one far before the game even starts, and then one after the game. So the idea was that they would, um, after the game was released, they would start making games or they made a novel of one one of the one of the episodes i think um but the game didn't end up uh selling enough to get a sequel um which is why uh takashi ended up leaving uh square enix in the end xenogears like had this combination of sort of and do correct me if i'm wrong here like it had a combination of real-time battles like with square enix's active time battle system like i think it was the first game no sorry it wasn't it wasn't the first game that would have been used uh, that have used it outside final fantasy but it used it in an interesting way in a, in a source like rather than yeah. the kind of sword based combat or stuff like that there was sort of martial arts combat like talk about that's, that yeah that's a very good point actually yeah um so it's kind of an evolution of um I guess in some ways it's an evolution of Chrono Trigger's battle system because I think it was the same designers and Chrono Trigger itself was an evolution of of Final Fantasy's um, battle system. So it, it is it is turn based, but rather than just you know selecting attack or defend or magic or whatever, you um, when it, when you chose to attack you had uh, three different strengths of attack, almost like Street Fighter. You had like a weak attack, a medium attack, and a strong attack. And you had a certain number of like, a certain amount of action points or something that that would determine how many things you could do. So you might might do like a, a weak attack and then a strong attack if you had four action points or whatever. 
or you might do two medium attacks or whatever. But these, they, but they could basically, as you went through the game, you learned combos. Um, uh, just again, like a, like a fighting game um, that you would put in, and then they would do these kind of crazy martial arts, um, like spinning around and and, whack, and you know picking people up and throwing them and all sorts of kind of crazy craziness. Um, so yeah, there was an element of martial arts in it, and then as well as that, there was a whole another battle system for when you were in the robots, where you had a similar like light, medium, strong attack. I think I think it's been a while, um, but you had like this fuel um, uh, gauge that you would have to recharge and make sure you're not weren't using too much of or whatever. So it was kind of crazy, and it had two really massively deep battle systems. Um, depending on whether you were on foot or whether you were um, in the uh, in the gears, um, and uh, yeah, so there was a lot of stuff. The, the battle system was 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 really really great, um, and uh, yeah, it, it really did feel like it had its own flavor um, and its own identity a, a, a away from Final Fantasy. And yeah, I, I it's strange that martial arts was such a big part of it because it's not really a part of the game at all apart from the fact that they most of them use martial arts some of them do use weapons i think some of the characters um billy uses a gun billy the priest (laughs) uh uses a gun uh that sounds so jarring when you put it like that yes yes um (laughs) yeah it really is uh uh yeah, but Billy's. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we'll have to get onto Billy in a bit, but um, but yeah, I think uh, the main characters Faye and um, Saitan, who's called Shitan in the Japanese <laughs> in the Japanese version, which they had to change. Um, yeah, which obvious. Uh, you know, being about fourteen at the time, I thought was hilarious. <laughs> It's called Shithead. <laughs> We're still children uh, now. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't pretend to have, to have grown up. Uh, yeah. But yeah, um, Xenogears was like a, a very strange game in that it really tried to have a lot of messages about real life in it. So as well as characters going through like real... Well... Actually, I was going to say characters going through real mental disorders. That's absolutely not true because the main character has multiple personality disorder and his other personality is like a devil. So that's not how multiple personality disorder works at all. (laughs) So to claim it is would be quite ridiculous for me. Um, But yeah, like it has a lot of stuff about the real world in it. And um, there was, I remember reading an interview with, Takahashi and he said like at the time his he he he's very he feels very differently now because of how games have matured changed and matured and all of that but at the time he really wanted to put messages about um about the real world and about how almost like how to live better I guess in the get like in the games and, and the reason he put them in the games is because he felt like if he just went up to people uh, the people who would play the game and just said these things, they would be like, "Why are you preaching at me? Like, who are you? Like, what's going on?" But if he wrote characters who were in those situations and found out those answers for themselves, then he would be able to uh, get that message across to people in a more 
natural way. Um, and it really, and it, it, it was surprisingly effective. I mean, there's, um, there's, uh, so as I was just saying with Billy, Billy's a character who's a priest in the main religion in the world of Senegis. Um, and he, uh, so that religion is called the ethos in the English version, but in the Japanese version, it's just called the church, um, which they had to change because, uh, it was very obviously the Catholic church. <laughs> um, and they made in the Japanese version, they make no effort to essentially say that it isn't, you know, basically just the Catholic church. Um, so yeah, it, it had to, it was one of the things that got changed in the English version. Um, but, uh, and, and, and you know there's there's some pretty dodgy stuff in there um but one of the things is that through the course of the game is that you kind of learn that the religion is a lie um and was created as a tool to manipulate people uh into a an end game um which you know some people would say about real religion or whatever um but you've got this character in your party who is like a devout member of that faith um, and he basically kind of undergoes a big crisis of confidence because he's, you know, like, well, everything I've dedicated my life to, I've just found out is a lie. Um, I have no idea what to kind of do with my life now. Um, and then uh, he's in his giant robot and his dad comes along in another robot that's shaped like a bullet. And his dad, <laughs> saying it now, it's really, it's just so bizarre. But um, his dad comes along, and his dad gives him the speech about, um, you know, religion isn't religion isn't something that people tell you. You know, religion is what you believe yourself. You know, it's not um, you have to come up with the answers yourself. You, you know, you don't just um, take what other people say and uh, and just go by that you know you have to you have to work things out for yourself you have to question things yourself you have to find out what your true spirituality is as a person and you know use that as your force to go forward not just what someone else says and that's the kind of moment that rejuvenates him as a character because he realizes he can still be he can almost still be a religious person in a world that now has no religion in it because it's not about what other people say. It's about him doing what he thinks is right. Um, and him following his own code of ethics, you know, in a way. And then he, his dad transforms fully into a bullet. And then Billy puts the bullet in his gigantic gun and then fires him at a boss that you couldn't kill. Uh, and then his dad dies. So it's a really, it's, like, it makes no sense at all. Um, and I remember I did a talk about this uh, at uh, a literary festival in London. And there was a night about game criticism, or, like reading out game essays. And I did the story about the, ma- the man in the man in the bullet. Because at the time I was playing the game, I had, uh, at the time I was playing the game, I had just become okay with the idea that i was um a gay man um and i as part of that as somebody who was kind of grew up in a in a christian household although not a very you know strong one but i went to a school where we had church services every every week that we had to go to um and you know i can't imagine how many times i've recited the lord's prayer and all that kind of stuff 
I because I just come to I just come to the point where I was beginning to be okay with my sexuality. I rebelled against religion, uh, which I think a lot of um, gay or queer people do because they uh, see religion as um, something that well, you know, that explicitly thinks you're wrong. You know, um, if you take it literally. Um, and so it's the first thing that I rebelled against. I was like, you know, I'm not going to do those prayers in school anymore. You know, I don't care about religion and that's complete bullshit. And I, I don't, you know, I don't want anything to do with it. And, you know, fuck them or whatever. And then I played this game and, and I, and that the moment that I saw that scene, that uh, unbelievably ridiculous scene where a man did a suicide in a bullet um i i it changed my uh outlook completely um i was just sat there not really expecting to to have a massive life epiphany that day but listening to the character say that i suddenly realized that um uh just because i didn't want to be a part of a religion that thought I was uh, wrong or that there was something wrong with me that I wasn't admitting um, didn't mean that I couldn't be a religious or spiritual person. Um, And it actually, uh, it it was a huge moment for me because it made me, um, yeah, it made me open my mind again because I deliberately closed my mind off and you know being like yeah i'm going to be an atheist whatever you know religion is evil and it made me kind of reassess my viewpoint and go you know what it's not it's not about religion being a bad thing although it can be a bad thing religion can also be a good thing and more importantly you should always keep on questioning yourself and what's going on around you um and yeah, and 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 uh, and a lot a lot of the other religious parts of Zenigiz. Zenigiz is very much based around um, Gnosticism. Hmm. Uh, really, kind of sparked my interest in Gnosticism, and I ended up buying a lot of books about it and reading it, and and basically subscribing to that worldview in my own my own way. And that the, you know the Earth is kind of messed up, but it's and the God that it says the God that claims to rule, um, you know, this earth is not a necessarily a very good God, um, and is kind of deceiving us from the truth. And, um, uh, yeah. And, and I ended up, uh, yeah, it basically kickstarted a journey that ended up with me, um, you know, becoming a member of a Unitarian church when I moved to London, um, and finding a lot of, uh, happiness and um, uh, a sense of belonging uh, through that, which I would never have had if I'd not played Zenegiz, you know, if I hadn't had that moment that opened my mind. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of one of the reasons that Zenegiz will always be my favourite, favourite game, because it actually literally changed my life um, and made me re-examine uh things in a 
in a much broader, uh, much more mature way, really. I think it's insane when you put it like that. I mean, like it's it's kind of hard to kind of quantify that in a way with a question, but it's I don't ever recall games doing religion on a near kind of main focal point of the game. Like no, no not 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 until um not until recently anyways with um near automata animates, like for sure. But other than that and Xeno games you don't really expect games to kind of give you those kind of life ep- epitomies. Uh, yeah. and up at least until recently, but I think that's kind of why games have matured so much in the past what, twenty or so years since yeah. Xenogears came out and it's insane that now that we have these games that can deal with these mature issues like like religion, like mental health, like sexuality. It's it's yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, I also Xenogears is the first, uh, I think, and probably the only um, JRPG where the you know there's a love interest between the two the, between the main male and main female characters. Um, they they have sex. Uh, which, you know, I remember being like, blimey. I mean, you don't, like, see it, but it's very obvious that it happens. And I remember, like, before that, JRPGs were so, like, chaste, and they still are in a lot of ways. Um, and, um, and you know, innocent. And this was a game that was just like, no, I'm, you know, let's let's deal with things, uh, you know. To me, Zenig is, is what an actual mature game is do you know what i mean like not mature as in oh it's full of blood and violence or you know whatever but as in it's not afraid to say things about the real world like like it's mature in its themes not so much mature in its kind of showing of this is for mature people or stuff like yeah, that. yeah it's just basically mature themes yeah exactly um and again that's something that um like you say with Nia, with you know Yoko Taro, um, he is very much. Even though he writes these insanely fantastical, you know, strange games, he is very keen on reflecting the real world in the games that he does. Um, which is why you know Nia is still Nia, and you know his games are still some of the only Japanese games that have gay characters in them. Um, and that that try to say a lot about how we are as humans now, even though they're not set in the now, you know. Um, I'll come back on the near um, yeah. near time like way later on, but um, just to jump back into uh, Xenogears and um, like and literally onto like the final five letters of that name, Gears. Um, yes. Like, yeah. Um. I think Gears are perhaps... A, I think Takahashi has a bit of an obsession with Gears now, going by Xenogears and Xenoblade in a way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the idea with Xeno was that it was always uh, going to be a story about something outside the norm, and that's obviously what, you know, Xeno means outside. Um, and, yeah, you know, Xeno is the thing that's carried... Uh, that he's carried basically as his brand um, 
from Xenogears, then he left uh, Square Enix uh, and started up Monolith Soft, which originally was part of Namco. Uh, and that's when he started the Xenosaga games, which originally was going to be six games, um, just like the six episodes of Xenogears, uh, and was like a spiritual remake. Not remake, but kind of re-imagining. In some ways, yeah, like it, it, yeah, it started at episode one, where obviously Denegas had started at episode five, and it wasn't going to be exactly the same, but it was the same themes, the same uh, type of thing. Um, but again, just far, far, far too ambitious. Um, you know, they made three forty-hour RPGs, and only made it to about halfway through episode two's worth of story. Um, and he ended up leaving, having to leave the project and, you know, um, and Soraya Saga wrote the script for the first one and then was um, unceremoniously dumped from the series after that. It was a big, big to do um, at the time, I remember. Um, and then, yeah, so then, uh, so he did those, and that got, that series got ended after three games. Then Nintendo bought um, Monolith Soft, and he started on Xenoblade. And again, a uh, bit off far more than he could chew, really, because Xenoblade is is a is the first one is a, is a huge game. You know, it has a main story that is at least forty five fifty hours long, plus a gigantic open world full of side quests and ridiculous things. Um, but there was an interesting thing in a in an interview he did uh, in one of the, those old uh, Iwata asks interviews they used to do, you know, that were amazing, um, where he said that basically uh, in every game he'd made previously he'd got to the halfway point and then had to give up um, because of circumstances, and he got to that point with with Xenoblade Chronicles. Um, he got to that point in the middle when it just seemed like it was this gigantic thing and there was no way they were going to be able to do it. Uh, and they went to Nintendo and were like, we just don't, we, we're going to have to cut loads of it. And Nintendo was like, no, you're going to, you're going to see this through. This is going to be the one where you actually get to the end of what you want to achieve. Um, and it's kind of been that way since with then Xenoblade Chronicles X, although, uh, I I don't know what happened with that game in a lot of ways, um, and yeah, now Xenoblade Chronicles Two, which is out in a in a few w- weeks. Yeah, about two weeks time as of recording this, and always as of recording. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. And finally, finally, Soraya Saga has has been allowed back um, to do something. She's only done one character design for one of the uh, Blade characters. Mm. But um, it's so good to have her back because, you know, uh, she would she her she is one of the people I look up to most in the games industry because I feel like she wrote really really good female characters, and um, I think she wrote some she wrote at least one incredible mother character as well, and I think that's really you know I think we've got to the point in games now where we value diversity in terms of people that are making games because we want we want diverse stories and i think this was happening with this happened in xenogears and this happened in 
Xenosaga episode one, um, where you have this uh, mother character who has a really great arc about coming to terms with something about her child that I don't think could have, I don't feel like it could have been written by someone who wasn't a mother. And then I feel like they were really ahead of the curve. And then she got like discarded. Um, and, uh, and it's been, um, and I think, I think that's just such a shame. And I know she's doing some things now, but she's very secretive about what they are. Um, she follows me on Twitter and we do talk occasionally. Um, she's lovely, but she's very secretive and reserved now. Um, after a lot of stuff that happened, but it's only because of her that we know so much about Xenogears and Xenosaga and how they were made. She's the only one who's ever really, um, spoken about them. You know, it's only it's because of her. We know that it was originally the Final Fantasy seven game and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, so she's a voice that I really want heard again. Um, because I really think, I really think she has a lot of, um, a lot of unique viewpoints and, and experiences to draw upon. So that brings us to the kind of overworld and character building then of Xenogears. And like, how, how, how was that something that you found in it? It's, I mean, it's the, the level of detail is insane. So they released this book afterwards called perfect works, um, which is like a, it's part art book, but it's mostly, um, like a background setting book and just the amount of effort they went into about, you know, cause the game takes place over 10,000 years of history and the amount of effort they went into do- dealing with things like how, how the people evolved, how creatures evolved, how um, the societies and, uh, and religions evolved. There's like the most insane amount. I've never, ever seen world building more detailed like the level of detail is just incredible there's just like hundreds of pages of dense information about these civilizations and people and creatures and how the monsters evolved and all just like so much detail um and a a lot of it really comes through in the game but it's when you look at that book and you see just how insane they went and you see all of the events of the game plotted out and how many and how much it takes and there's pages and pages about just what just what happens in the intro and explaining the bio the the uh biochemistry of how organic computing could work and all just like insane insane levels of detail and that's that's that now is is takahashi's trademark um they did it again on on Xenosaga. Xenosaga uh, again, like the the super super spiritual prequel, um, takes place in a in a galaxy full of these planets with different civilizations and full of um, different people and and uh, just it's like I always said that Xenosaga was the most detailed like. Um, universe I'd seen since like Star Wars it was kind of that insane level of detail even though so much of it wasn't being shown um, so yeah that's kind of his trademark now and uh, uh, it's something they've tried to carry on I I, I think with less uh, personally with less success 
certainly with Xenoblade Chronicles X just felt um, very not like that at all. I, so I really, I don't know what happened with that game. But I, I can really remember feeling way, way, way too overwhelmed with X. So yeah, it's 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 like I feel like there probably was a lot of stuff there, but it's just none of it. It's explained well, and um, it's crazy. But I was reading, I was reading something about uh, Xenoblade Chronicles Two that one of the writers wrote on the official website, and they were saying. One of the things they said is like we were absolutely dedicated on making it a very Takahashi style game, and by that we mean a ridiculous uh, density of of world building. Um, so that's kind of that's his trademark, really. And yeah, Zenig is um, to have like ten thousand years of history, and a, a lot of which, as you can see in game, even is just like insane. I'm going to touch upon Takahashi himself and um, Soraya Saga and like the the work they've done together. Obviously, they've gotten married, but like especially the work they've done. Like you mentioned, how Saga is basically one of your biggest inspirations. Yes, and yeah. uh, Takahashi himself like has gone on to build these kind of ambitious, filled with scope games like 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 Xenogears, like. Um, like with Xenozaga as well, and with Xenoblade, um, yeah. And I just want to like ask, like, even now, like, how much of an impact have they kind of left within the JRPG genre? Do you think? Um, it's really, in some ways, I don't think it's been enough, and in other ways, I feel like now is when they are finally being. You're finally getting yeah, their due. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Xenoblade was definitely the point at which um, everyone was just like, this game is incredible. And I was like, I know, hello. I've been trying, you know, it's the same thing I've had with Near Near Ultimata, where I've just been like, hello. <laughs> you know, it's been like this for a while. Um, yeah, I mean, Xenogears, I don't think that many people, re- I mean, it didn't, not not really enough people played it to have a massive impact. Xenosaga... You see, the thing with Xenosaga is that they went in... I mean, Xenogears is full of cutscenes, but Xenosaga, um, each 40-hour each game has about eight hours of cutscenes in it. So it's like Kojima density of cutscenes. It's, it's just insanity. And I think a lot of people looked at that and were like... Oh no, that's what we don't want to do, in a lot of ways. And they learn that now as well. Like um, Soraya Saga says now that they've learned they need they needed to be a lot better about the balancing of of gameplay and story exposition, you know, and how they can't always be separate things. So I think Xenosaga almost is like it was like a cautionary tale in some ways about ambition and and, and maybe not going on the right path. But yeah, now. Zen, I think, I, I mean, to me, um, Xenoblade is the pinnacle of open world JRPGs, at least, and one of the best open world RPGs, I think, in general. Um, in terms of, certainly in terms of visual design, um, uh, the um, with, with Xenoblade, um, every area has something that makes it, like, makes you catch your breath in how beautiful it is even when it was running on the wii and looked 
disgusting. Hmm. Just the just the, the imagination of the area because the concept of it being set on these two dead giant gods and you're on their skin and how that played with being able to see these things in the distance and other parts of the body and um, you know like it just had such a wonderful concept Um, and I hope that's had more of an impact you know Um, I certainly think it's the example of how open world JRPGs could and, and should be it's not perfect um but you know i think it probably had an impact with like i i would be very surprised if um square enix hadn't uh hadn't referenced it you know when they were doing final fantasy 15 um when they were trying their first open world game uh in a lot of senses you play final fantasy 15 you're like this is really good but you do realize that like xenoblade did this on the wii like five years ago (laughs) and did it a bit better (laughs) um uh, so yeah i think nowadays i feel like takashi has a lot more um of a kind of a stature particularly in japan um whenever i i think i remember when i was working on heaven story rivals and dealing with square enix i think i i think i remember mentioning to the guy who was our producer that um that i that zena gears was my favorite game of all time and he was like really like kind of surprised like because it had been not a massive you know not a failure but not a massive success for them so i think to hear somebody that there was somebody in england who like adored that game um was like a bit weird um which i think is probably why square enix have never done anything with it um partly that and also partly because i think it's so I think it's so personal to Takahashi and Saga that I, I like. I don't think you could remake it. I think it would, it would just be, it would, it wouldn't be the same. I remember writing a pitch to to remake it <laughs> uh, that I never did anything with. I never even presented it to anyone. But I remember doing it when the 3DS came out um, because I was like, they could, you could do Zanakis on on this. Um, but even I was like, oh. I love this game, but I don't think I could do it. Like, it's just so... Uh, it's just so personal to them that what I would do wouldn't be Xenogears, you know? Mm. Um, even though I, I could... I, you know, I, I have my own list of things I would want to do and bits I would want to cut and bits I would want to add back in and bits I'd want to rejig and so much that I feel like I could do to it. Um... I wouldn't, I don't think I would dare. Hmm. You know, it's like, it holds such a special place in the hearts of the people that played it um, that I think it would be, it would be crazy. Um, let me pose you a kind of hypothetical question. Um, <clears throat> um, so, the past, I'm trying to think how many games it's been now. So, the past five Final Fantasy games have all been done by. Katase uh, Tanaka Ito but that was only after Matsuda left um, Toriyama Tanaka again and then with Nomura or not Nomura um, Yoshida with 14 when that was uh, relaunched as A Realm Reborn and then Tabata for 15 and obviously yep. the speculation is maybe Ito for 16 but 
hypothetical is, do you think um, that maybe, just maybe, that um, Takahashi would have done justice to a numbered Final Fantasy game if he had stuck around and was handpicked to be a director of one? That's really interesting. That's a very interesting question. I've never thought about that, actually. I think he probably wouldn't be precious enough with what... I don't think he'd want to be constrained by... Because there's this very nebulous idea of what makes a Final Fantasy, you know. And I think and Square, in Square Enix, in some ways, I think even struggles with that a little bit. You know, they have a committee now, which they've talked about, um, that kind of, uh, you know, that's like Yoshida, Tabata, um, Kitase, and, and Toriyama, I think, who uh, are... And Nomura, I would assume, as well. Oh, so yeah, it might be Nomura instead of Toriyama. Um who uh, are kind of the custodians of where, of what Final Fantasy is or where it goes. Um, and yeah, I don't know if he would want to fit into that. I think he, I think he, he seems to have very strong visions for things, very strong ideas, very strong concepts. And uh, I don't know if he would want to be, uh, if he would want to really, uh, yeah, really, like, not do what he wanted to do. I think maybe, you know, if he had been given the chance to do a game and was now part of that committee, it would be really interesting because he does have very different tastes to, you know, the other games, you know, that you, like they're, they're much more mech, mecha, you know, focused, and um, certainly Xenoblade, and it looks like Xenoblade Chronicles 2 are quite anime- um, inspired in terms of their the kind of just the feeling of them and they, they feel a bit more like Saturday morning cartoons hmm. um which i think final fantasy stopped being a long time ago um but yeah i mean i love the fact that um i love the fact that the that final fantasy committee is is a, is broader now like that, that it has yoshida and tabata who i think both, I think, did incredible things with their games. Um, and really, uh, I think they have a very strong idea, also have very strong ideas of what makes a Final Fantasy game. So, yeah, it would be great to have Takahashi in that mix as well. But, yeah, like like I say, in some ways I feel like Takahashi has made some mistakes in what he's done. But I think I'm glad he's made them in some ways. Like, they, he wouldn't be where he was now if he hadn't done a lot of the things that, that happened in the past. And yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, but um, yeah, I think we're probably, we're probably better off that he's not. Um, I think he, I think, I think Nintendo give him a lot of freedom and a lot of um, uh, leeway to kind of do things that he wants to do. And the things he does nowadays are a lot light, a lot lighter hearted and not, not nearly as um, dark as, you know, Xenogears was and as uh, weighty as Xenosaga tried to be. Um, so, yeah, I don't I, I don't know if he would have ever developed that style without being away from Final Fantasy, if you know what I mean. Mm, mm. No, no, I totally get it. Um, it. It would be a really interesting what-if-though scenario. Yeah, yeah, it really, it, yeah, it absolutely would. 
um, it, it would be an interesting to see what the pressures of of working on Square's biggest franchise does to um, does to your vision and to your uh, your your eagerness or or trepidation towards taking risks. I think, whereas I don't feel like I feel like Takahashi has taken a lot of risks, and a lot of the time, a lot of the times they haven't really worked out. Um, and he may never have taken those if if he'd been if he'd had the pressure of you know Square's financial future on him, like that kind of <clears throat> like that kind of albatross in a sense like yeah yeah which i think is where um i think where tabata has done really well in that he managed to make something that felt very distinct from other final fantasy games especially considering Uh, when that project in itself had its own issues when it was namura directing and when it was versus 13 as well to an extent yeah yeah i mean I, 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 I cannot wait for the day when we find out what actually happened yeah. <laughs> to all of that because it feels like there's so much interesting stuff that went on back then. But yeah, like the fact that he was able to take something, take over something, rework it, and get it out in three and a half years. And, um, and really, you know, a lot of people... Uh, I think the thing with 15 is that a lot of people don't like what he tried to do. You know, they don't like the road trip thing. Hmm. Whereas I think, I think he, I think the thing you can't, I don't think, the thing you can't disagree with about 15 is that they executed that road trip thing basically perfectly, as as well as they could have. Um, and whether people like the game or not, it's whether they like the idea of that road trip. But in terms of like achieving what you aim for, I think they basically got it dead on. Um, that they wanted it to feel like a road trip. They wanted you to feel the connection between those four characters. And that's the thing the game does really well. Beyond that, you know, everyone has their different opinions of how well it does, but um, those four characters are, you know, are drawn so well um, that, yeah, I think it, I, you know, personally, I think 15 was a great achievement, but I, I understand that there will always be people that don't think that. But that's Final Fantasy fandom for you. Um, you know, you can never agree on anything. <laughs> Other than our super serious radical hate of 13, maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Even though I'd rather play 13 than 8, but, you know, that's a whole other story. <laughs> fair enough. Um, <laughs> although, to be fair, I probably took 13 on a fire, but that's, for, that's a different story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... What about, especially, just to go jump completely back in the uh, Xenogears and like um, the soundtrack, especially from uh, Yasunori Matsuda. Like, how 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 was that for you, especially in terms of a game that scope and that ambition? Divine, I think, is the only word I could is the only word I could say to describe it. It's it's like I was just so blown away by it because it's very it's just so strong and um i think mitsuda said at the time that he felt like what he at the time what he wanted to do was create these incredibly strong melodies that maybe nowadays he wouldn't because they might be a bit repetitive or something but um i it, it just worked so incredibly well um 
and um you know there's so it's it's a very um Mitsuda developed a very um has developed a reputation for like a very um uh, world uh, what I don't want to say world I want to say almost say ethnic kind of approach to composition where his games have a lot of the feels of different cultures in them uh in his music um and Zenigis is very much the start of that um because he you know he took a lot of inspiration from that's why he kind of uh, from Celtic music especially um he took a lot of inspiration from that in fact the um the theme tune to Zenigis which i believe was the first square enix game to have a vocal um end song because they got there before final fantasy 8 did um that was actually recorded in ireland um and has mostly irish musicians on it uh and the singer is a uh, an irish singer called joanne hogg from uh, iona i think um who were uh, at one point a, a fairly well-known like celtic folk band um and yeah it's like really crazy there's also a song which is a bulgarian choir which he literally went to bulgaria to um to 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 record but that's a really that's a like if you've ever heard any of this kind of bulgarian choir kind of way almost like wailing voices it's this like incredibly overbearing um like very spiritual kind of uh music kind of sound and it plays in the game at the moment where you where you finally meet the the the, the you finally meet god you know you finally meet the the god it, what, what amounts for a god in against the true god the one true you know uh wave existence as he's called um and it just fits that so perfectly because it's this like this kind of you know this this bulgarian chant that's kind of beautiful but also slightly scary at the same time and full of kind of wonder and um and it just encapsulates that what it must what it would be like to meet god you know being like terrified in some ways and um incredibly uh curious and feeling love i guess that you would feel if you met your creator um and it just it amounts to that perfectly but i've never heard anything like it in a game ever since then um and uh yeah and yeah that was that was mitsuda's thing was about you know different cultures and taking the instruments from uh local music in different countries and kind of combining that together to give a game a feeling of being in another world um and yeah, that was, you know, Chrono Trigger, he did before that. And Chrono Trigger's soundtrack is incredible. And Chrono Trigger does have some elements of world music in it as well, actually, to be quite fair. But I think Xenogears is where it really, um, uh, it really becomes a thing. And then he takes that into Chrono Cross, uh, which was the game that that team, uh, minus Takahashi and minus the people that left, did next, um, which has an incredible, like, tropical sounds to it which um is just insane um but yeah again like very much an evolution of of uh of what he started and what he 
what he really uh, did with Xenogears. What else do you like about Xenogears that we've not touched upon tonight? Oh God, um, I don't know. It's just um, it's it's that mix of uh, of 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 really stupid. You know, um, it's, like I said when I did this talk at this literary festival. Xenogears is a game that is kind of almost not scared to be a game and to be ridiculous in it. So it has these ridiculous moments where you're in a giant robot and you're squaring off against a giant walking tank and uh, on the back of a air carrier in the middle of the sky. And it's just like, it makes no sense and it's stupid. Uh, and then it will be really serious and then it will be really dark and then there's a character. One of the party characters is just a pink ball of fur that just is adorable. And it, there's a moment where he becomes the size of a house, which makes no sense at all. Um, yeah, that's right. Because everybody has a gear. Everyone in the character has a gear that they can ride in. And then you get Choo Choo and you're like, well, how is he going to have a robot? No, he just grows to the size of a robot. So he is this giant sphere with an adorable face um, that is like taking on these massive evil robots. And like, it's just, um, it's just that perfect mix of, um, yeah, like I was saying earlier, maturity, but also that um, ridiculousness of robot anime. And, um, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. Like there's so, there, there are so many, there are quite a few bad bits in the game. I've never managed to play it through again. Um, I've tried quite a few times and I've always got up to certain points and then quit because there's particularly difficult dungeons or there's that one bit where you're in, when you're a prisoner in Kislev that goes on for like five hours and you're like, Jesus Christ, like there's so much else you could be doing right now, but we're, we're in some weird battling league in order to get bomb collars taken off our necks. And it's just, uh, Oh, then there's a talking rat. I forgot about the talking rat. Yeah. It's just everything. That game is everything. And I I can very much imagine that a lot of people would play it and just go, this is a complete mess. Um, but I think, I think, I think if you can see what it is, it's just, it's just, it's just wonderful. That's all I can really say. <laughs> um, what didn't you like about it? Um, so yeah, like I said, there are some areas where the, the, where the game slows down, and the, the thing is that there's so much story in the game, and it doesn't need to slow down. But there are just these moments where you're doing the stuff, and it it doesn't feel really slower than any other game. But it's just when you know the true scope of the game and what's going on, you just think, well, why did you? why couldn't we have done a bit less there and, and not had some of the bits later on that were cut and replaced by, you know, people rocking in, in rocking horse, in rocking chairs, um, like they're going mad. Um, and there are some, there, it's very difficult. Like a lot of the games of that time, a lot of the RPGs of that time is is quite tough. Um, and it can really hand it to you. Um, but that's about it. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's, yeah. Like if I could go back and remake it, I, w- I think I would just, I would just try and pace things a little bit better and, 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 
cut out some unnecessary bits so that some of the other more necessary bits don't get glossed over at the end. I think most people would point to disc two and say disc two is boring, but if you're invested in the story by that point, then disc two is like crack, especially as for a lot of the game you've, a lot of the latter half of disc one you spend inside the characters' minds anyway. So to have them rocking in space, talking about stuff that happens doesn't feel weird at all. It's just just like, oh yeah, okay. They're talking about things that might have happened and there's a giant cross swinging in the background. Um, But, you know, that's just normal. What would you change from a design perspective on in terms of the game itself? Uh, You know, I don't think I'd change anything. Oh, do you know what I would do? I've just remembered there are some terrible platforming bits. Do you remember when a lot of games that weren't platformers had platforming bits in them? Yeah. And you were just like, this game is not meant to be a platformer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really hard. There's, There's one... Um, there's one notorious bit uh, in the Tower of Babel where you have to climb the tower and you're doing it by jumping on rocks and you just keep on slipping and falling all the way down and you have to start again and you're just like why? So I'd probably um, I would I would get rid of the jumping any I'd probably just get rid of the jumping full stop uh, take the jump button out. Um, but aside from that, the battle system is so good. Um, I, I honestly wouldn't change anything about it. Um, the like I say, the story and the stuff I would I would rearrange a bit. And but yeah, the design of it, I do. I may I'd make it a bit easier. I think as well because uh, some of the bosses are just like a massive, a bit of a kind of gate. And I remember some of them. I had to do so many so many times i never finished the game because uh the last boss was too hard um so i had to watch the ending on youtube many many years later i just didn't know how it ended for a long time um <laughs> uh so yeah they're just little bits but uh but no zenigas is actually the closest i think it's the closest i think it's the closest thing to perfection that takashi has done um so yeah, I really wouldn't change a huge amount at all. What would you say is the moment in Xenogears that it became your favourite game? Uh, do you know what? I can't remember. I was trying to think about this earlier and I can't actually remember exactly what the moment is. But it's the it's the moment where you... You... Um, where it's like the pan back on the camera and you suddenly realise how big things are. Um you really you you like you start to piece together the the puzzle that it's been hinting at for ages um and that's just uh, a mind-boggling um a mind-boggling thing because you're just like god the things i was the things we were doing as a as a party before were so trivial compared to you know what we're doing now where we're you know trying to well you know um yeah, I think that's um, that's that's it. There's a particular moment towards the end of the game, um, which, in which obviously spoiler alert, but I've been spoiling everything throughout here anyway. Um, in which uh, there's a bit, yeah, towards the end of the game where ninety percent of the people on Earth die. That was the moment where I was like, oh, ho, 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 ho. like I don't, I already knew by that point that this was a 
very much a game for me. But that was the point where I was like, wow, you cannot predict where this is going to go at all. And that's that's a very exciting thing. Um, that's a very exciting position to put a player in um, where, you know, they're just shocked by things that are happening. That's great. And very rare. <laughs> that kind of grim predicament? Yeah, or just the fact that, um, like, oh, my God, they went there. Like, you, you know, they're... You, the, just where games hint about things or like, oh, something really bad's going to happen, but no, you save the day. And it's like, no, 90% of the world people, people in the world died, and it's also kind of your fault. Um, but, you know, you still got to go on. <laughs> and then, you you know, you go back and you, you find the survivors and they're all just like, you're a dick. <laughs> and you're kind of like, yep. Um, well, no, I don't know if they're really like that. Actually, looking back, they're not. I, I mean, it's kind. Of, I mean, it's only partially your fault, but it's still very much you do feel a sense of responsibility for it. Again, which I think is something that um, the Yoko Taro does really well in in his games. Just as, just taking you beyond where you'd normally go, just really escalating things to the next level. Obviously, there was no kind of follow on from Xenogears. But there were Xeno games, so let's say top three Xeno games. How would you rank them? Obviously, Xeno games at the top, but like in terms of Xeno Zaga or Xenoblade, how would you rank them? Uh, I'd probably say um, Xeno Gears at the top. Obviously. Obviously. Uh, Xenoblade second, probably, because it's very complete. I mean, I, again, I didn't finish it because it was so long. And I do really regret that, and I'm desperate for them to do an HD remaster of it at some point, which they really should do. Um, uh, and then for the third one, well, it would have to, it wouldn't be X, mm-hmm. definitely wouldn't be X. No. So it would be one of the the three uh, Xenosaga games. Um, Xenosaga Episode One struggles by being the first part of a big story so not really enough happens especially as they cut so much from it um but it is very takahashi and that's great xenosaga episode two is just a mess because they decided because the first because the first xenosaga sold really well in america they were like we're going we're going to change everything we're going to make it more explosions and more and more stuff for Americans. And, you know, that's when they got rid of Takahashi. He wasn't director anymore, and he was just, like, original story or something. Um, and, it, you know, they redesigned the characters to look awful. And, um, yeah, that was a bad point. Xenosaga Episode 3 rectifies a lot of things, but it's it has to uh, tie up a lot of loose ends that weren't meant to be tied up so quickly. So it's kind of a brain dump. I'd probably say Xenosaga episode three, just because to have on, when you've been playing something, you've been playing a series for 90 hours across five years and you've had these mysteries since the beginning and they're finally, you know, they're finally getting solved. That was, that was a pretty incredible feeling, even if it wasn't, perhaps they weren't solved as well as they should have been. Um, it was it was pretty crazy and I, I cried a lot at the ending of that game so um, you know to have five years of something you'd be so excited about be over was kind of crazy uh, so yeah Zenosaga episode 3 would be third 
Okay, so honourable mentions. Well, obviously, Final Fantasy VII. Um, you have to say because Final Fantasy VII. If it hadn't been for Final Fantasy VII, I would have never been able to experience Senegas because I never would have known to look for something so obscure, something that you know didn't even come out in Europe. Um, and you know, what can you say about Final Fantasy VII that hasn't been said? Nothing. Um, but Final Fantasy VII. It just opened my eyes to what games could be. You know, Xenogears further opened them, but Final Fantasy VII did that heavy lifting the first time. And, um, you know, I still maintain that the first uh, 10 hours of that game are the finest first 10 hours of any RPG ever. Um, I went back and... Uh, at one point, I was, I was studying... Um, opening acts and I played the first like five hours of seven and the first five hours of eight and it's just astonishing how much better the first five hours of seven are like it drops you straight into the action um it keeps on surprising you it like um it it just it, it it's just crazy and then you leave Midgar and it's like now the game starts you know, like this crazy, um, uh, like shift of oh yeah, now you've got a world to explore, um, which you know most games wouldn't would do much earlier and wouldn't make you feel like you'd played a full game before then. Um, so yeah, you know, seven was the game. You know, it was the game. You know, it was the game where Eris died. Right, that's what everyone remembers yeah. because we didn't really know that that could happen before that right had anyone really died in game i mean i'm I'm sure people had died in games but that was the that was the kind of the 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 big one you know um and still to this day it's quite i still think it's really controversial that they gave you a character for that you could control for you know 15 20 hours and then killed her and were like yeah sorry she's not going to be part of it anymore uh, you know, because I remember people being really pissed off that they'd spent so much time, money on equipment for her and, you know, and getting her limit breaks and all that stuff. And then the game's like, nope, she's uh, she's gone. So, it, I mean, it's still to this day is like a is just a, a, a benchmark of uh, of emotional, um, you know, emotional moments. And, um, yeah, just again just such volume to that game um you know i imagine the first, I, I i i would imagine i have no idea obviously but i imagine the first whatever the first chapter of this seven remake we're going to get is going to just be midgar because midgar is big enough to sustain a game on its own you know um and that was just the opening act of of seven um so yeah just you know opened my eyes to the fact that games could be emotional, the fact that games could have these long stories, um, the fact that you would really get a feel of adventuring through a through a whole world. You know, like, I'd played games like Zelda beforehand, but that kind of almost felt like exploring an area. Um, 
and seven was where you felt like you went across an entire globe you know like you went to mat snowy mountains and deserts and under the sea and into space and you know you really got every part of that world down um so yeah i mean and the soundtrack you know that was the i think that was one of the first times that i that i loved the game soundtrack i think the one before that was street fighter 2 i remember having a cd of street fighter 2 soundtrack somehow don't know that, how. That, that was um yoko shimamura right it was yoko shimamura who yeah who, who went on to do 15 which uh i think is one of the greatest rpg soundtracks so to have her having started that from back then is you know pretty special so yeah everything about seven it, it's been talked about so much it feels sometimes it feels churlish talking about seven but not to mention that um, you've actually had two actual episodes on seven exactly exactly they could probably go about on about it they probably have gone on about it far better than i have so um the other final fantasy that i would say gets an honorable mention is nine um which is my probably my favorite final fantasy i think um i mean maybe seven is my favorite really but i don't want to say seven because it's the obvious answer whenever anyone asks that question you know um that's actually a question that i ask everybody who starts at mediatonic it's the first thing i ask them when everyone does a welcome email it's like hey what's your what's your favorite final fantasy by the way there are wrong answers to this question uh, and it always starts a debate which i love um and yeah, nine nine to me is different from seven because it's uh, it's I mean not just because the setting because it's more medieval, more fantasy, but it also has kind of that old Final Fantasy tone of being a bit more playful, a bit less serious, um, a bit you know quite whimsical, um, you know quite big on the physical comedy, which which again seven was really good at. Seven has a lot of quite funny quite stupid moments and one of the reasons i hate eight is because i feel like it just went up its own ass you know and became the super emo game um and nine to me is the game where you you know you've got the the characters have innately funny things about them you know like vivi has his clumsiness and uh steiner has his i guess Steiner is like the bumbling knight, you know, he, uh, the way his, you know, his big rusty armor that people keep on saying looks rubbish. And, um, the fact that he's always trying to do right, but getting it wrong. And, um, you know, it, and even like Iko, the little girl, she's got a real great sassy tongue on her and Queena, the weird giant, frog thing with the massive tongue who's you know the, the traditional final fantasy joke character um you know her obsession with food and not really understanding social mores is just wonderful i just think that game i think story-wise that game has a lot of problems especially towards the end but character-wise i think it's just wonderful everyone you know they go they really go through some stuff but they do it with uh, kind of a wink and a nod and uh and i think it's the i think it's the best soundtrack i think probably of a final fantasy i think that's when nobu yamatsu was just at the absolute top of his um of, of his game yeah and, and it's beautiful and the world design is gorgeous and 
and uh, yeah, everything about everything about nine kind of appeals to the slightly. Uh, I guess where seven appeals to the more almost like steampunky side of things. Nine is like the tradition is the best of the traditional Final Fantasy to me. The the one to six, you know, the best bits of all of those games um, put together. Um, so yeah, that would be my other Final Fantasy pick. Um, Chrono Cross, which I touched on earlier, uh, is a game that I think has a lot of, again, a lot of problems story-wise, supposed towards the end, but uh, has a brilliant opening part um, and the most gorgeous visual design of any, almost any game ever, whether it's set on these tropical islands and it just feels like a, it feels like a holiday. It's so the colors are so vibrant and there's all this crazy vegetation and coral and reefs and um, these gorgeous seas and it just you just want to drink it in. It's just, and the music, you know, um, easily Mitsuda's best soundtrack. It's Chrono Cross um, and just how gorgeously like tropical it sounds and um otherworldly and uh yeah again that game the game has problems but the battle system's great the battle system is very much an evolution of xenogears as one with the different level attacks and things like that um chrono cross has people that really don't like it i know i also like how chrono cross uh like shits on the game that it's a sequel to <laughs> because I think I think that's a really bold choice to make. You know, it's um I'd never played Chrono Trigger when I played Chrono Cross, so I didn't really have that frame of reference, which I think is why people don't like it, is when they come in having love trigger. But to um have a game that's a sequel and then to basically go, Oh yeah, you know those characters you loved in the previous game, well, one of them is rotting in prison uh, one of them is lost in time, and one of them died in a fire. Is just like really, really um, vicious, and I quite like that. Um, it's really not afraid to um, toy with the things that you know your nostalgia and things like that. And the concept of, I think, the concept of Chrono Cross is amazing. You know, where Chrono Trigger is this game about time travel and traveling through the same world at different points in time. Um, I really like that when they came to do cross, they really didn't want to do a sequel. Um, they wanted to do another kind of a spiritual successor. So rather than it being time travel, it's dimension travel. So you're dealing with one period of time, but two dimensions where, um, time has split based on an event that happens where, and so the first thing that happens with you as a character is that you, get drawn into this other dimension and you find out that in this other dimension you died 10 years ago, which I think is a really great setup for a story. Cause it's like, Oh, that's mystery. And I want to find out what happened to the previous me and what, what, what relation I have to the fact that there are these two split worlds, you know, that diverted at this point. And, and I think that's, a, that's to, to drop that on a player really early on is like a really nice lure to keep on playing and, um, and also, Chrono, Chrono Cross does something really great where there's obviously, like you're the you're the main male character, obviously, um, because you know it's an old game, um, and there's a main female character. And one of the first things you see is you is a, is a flash forward where you, as the main character, stab 
the the female character through the chest and kill her. Um, and then it immediately flashes back. So you have got like this, wow, you know, like I'm going to kill the other main character. How on earth is the game going to get to that point where that's something that happens? And in, in actuality, it's actually a really disappointing um, resolution to that. But again, it's like a setup. Um, uh, you know, again, having, you know, when I looked at studying great game openings, that's one where you just like, you just immediately you want to know more. It's a concept where you're just like, I want to, I want to find out so much more about what's going on, which uh, is a sadly rare thing because, you know, most games these days, you know how they kind of start um, or what they're going to be about and where they're going to go. And, and uh, so that's really something special. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, I, I, think so, we, I think we'll go with one more game because. Okay. So, like, let's talk near, shall we? Oh, okay. I was going to say Silent Hill Two. <sighs> Silent Hill. Okay, 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 very, okay. I'll let you go with two. I'll let you go with two. Silent Hill Two. I'll do. A, I'll do Silent Hill Two very quickly because there's not a huge amount to say about that. Silent Hill Two was the game that made me realise how much artistry goes into making games. Um, as you know, I, I'm sure you remember when it came out, it came with that documentary DVD um, that came with it. And I remember watching that and just being like astonished about the care and thought that people put into making games. And that was, that was kind of the final Silent Hill two was the final nail in the coffin that made me want to work in games because it was like, that was, it just shocked me the way that they tried to, the way that it, the game, that everything in the game was disgusting, but they tried to make it attractive in some way to draw you towards it. Like that idea that there were these, this push and pull of attraction and repulsion um, to me was just like, oh my God, that's, that's like such an insane level of thought, which I didn't know went into games at that point. Um, so Silent Hill 2 is very important for that. And obviously the story is great. Um, and it's just a wonderful game in general. Um, the other one... So, yeah, uh, I was also very quickly saying Metal Gear Solid 3, because I know you love Metal Gear Solid yes, 3. Yes, yes. Um, just because uh, I think just the ending of that game is just phenomenal. I think it's the um, best seven minutes of a game you will ever, ever, ever see in a game. Like It ever. really it, it really is. Uh, and the, the boss is just a wonderful character, and that's Preach. the hardest... Like, that's the hardest final fight of a game ever, because you, you, you don't want to kill her. Yeah. Just like, no, no, you're wonderful. I like you. <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, that's incredible. I ha- so I have to say that as an honourable mention because it's just uh, he's never done anything as good as that ever since. I, I'm I very I don't have any doubt of that in my heart, even though some other people may obviously agree um, or disagree. I mean, so yeah, the final one near. Um, so yeah, Yoko Taro is my new Tetsuya Takahashi in some ways, and that he's the he's the director I am obsessed about. Um, not that I'm not obsessed by Tetsuya Takahashi, but um, yeah, uh, the original Nier is the game that I've cried the hardest at. When the credits rolled on that game, I sobbed harder than I have ever probably ever sobbed in my life, and that that probably says something about the things that I've not faced in my life more than it does about the game. But, um, it was proper heaving. Um, you know, uh, like my face was wet 
um, you know, real, not just like tearing up, real crying because that game, uh, that game is the game that I point to when I want to talk about, uh, whenever I want to talk to people about tone because that game has a such a cohesive cohesive tone you know it's this it's it's this game that is about the uh, the 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 down the, the the death of humanity basically and um you know it takes place in this post-apocalyptic world where you know there was originally the world that we're in now but isn't that but is gone back to being this almost like pastoral you know fantasy land that j that you know jrpgs normally are that fantasy stories normally are and you see these relics of humanity around the place like that like there's a in one of the beginning areas there's this giant um railway bridge that's kind of like broken and um you know in pieces but it's looming there it's it's everywhere you look you can see this railway bridge and everyone in the world, no one in the world knows what they, what even that was like. They've lost so much, uh, knowledge and, um, comprehension that they just look at that and they're just like, we know that's what humanity used to be, but we don't know what a train is, you know? Um, and the, uh, and it's just this, unbearing sense of melancholy because it is about the decay of it's the last gasp of humanity that the entire of that game you know it's it's their un, humanity is under attack and really not doing very well and really dying out both from being attacked by these shades and by this uh this disease the black scroll and um everything you're doing is kind of feels kind of futile and the music is really melancholy and you know and a lot of these things are carried forward in Nero Thomasa um but it was the first thing where you just really felt you know just you just knew it was the end of days but not in like a fire and brimstone way it was like it was just like humanity can't go on like this and you're um and you're trying to save your daughter in it in 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 amongst all of this stuff not really giving a shit about the rest of the world because you're like i don't care my daughter's in danger i need to save her um and then in the end you doom the world you doom the world that's what you do you know in a in classic yoko taro fashion you are the bad guy (laughs) um and you know your selfishness your uh your you know yokotaro likes to uh have characters that um have extreme that are extremely stubborn and they have a goal and they will do absolutely anything to achieve their goal and you know how like in most you know the point of most stories is that characters change they learn a lesson mm. they arc um yokotaro said like that's i deliberately don't have my main characters do that my main characters don't arc and they suffer for it they're so stubborn in what they want to do that they achieve it or they don't achieve it and it dooms everyone else it's not really what they needed or what they wanted so in almost like all of his games are basically tragedies um 
because they're about the downfall of, of, of a person um, or, you know, yeah. And, um, and near is, is the perfect, it's just the, just the perfect sample of that it, as a game, it's, there are so many things that are wrong with it. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, it was always, I've always found it extremely hard to recommend people play near because I'm like, you're really going to have to struggle through a bunch of shit, you know, because, um, because, uh, not story wise or character wise, because, um, the story and characters in, in the original era, I think quite a lot better than near automata actually. Um, but just the com the combat's okay. Um, the graphics are bad. The frame rate is bad. There are a few moments, parts of the game, that are just like really bad game design. Um, but if you can get past that, you just get this incredible, um, this incredible full sensory experience of melancholy, which. You know, uh, again, I just think it's a masterclass of of looking for one tone and just nailing it completely uh, in everything, in the music, in the graphics, in the in the environment design, in the in the story, in the characters. It's just is it's just perfection uh, in that sense, at least. Um, and that's not even yeah, and yeah, and it it, it has the prototype essentially of. What near what near automata does with the multiple endings, um, in that when you play it through the second time, uh, you only play the second half because the game is a lot longer than a than a, a one of the roots of near automata, um, so you only play the second half of it again. But when you do it, you can understand what the humans or the, sorry what the enemies are saying, um, and you get the story of Kaine, the woman, uh, the kind of main female character, and. Um, and just how awful her life has been, and it's just heartbreaking. Um, and also, finally, understanding what the enemies are, and, and that actually you were being a real dick um, to them. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's very classic Yoko Taro. But um, gameplay-wise, I definitely think Neo Automata is better, and maybe structure-wise, Neo Automata is better, but. Uh, I don't think the characters in Nier Automata are, are anywhere near as good as as Kaine, as Emil, um, as as Nier, as Devola, as Popola. Um, you know, they they it's just uh, magic, and it was a very it was a very difficult decision whether I picked uh, Xenogears or Nier as my favorite game because I think Nier has done as almost as much to change how I think about games and really affect me. But Xenogears just pips it because I think because I played it at a more formative time of my life. So it was able to, Oh, well, the other thing is the interesting thing there is that Yoko Taro is the exact opposite of Tetsuya Takahashi in that he does not want to get any morals across. Um, he very explicitly says, I don't know what is right in the work is in life what the right thing to do is um maybe through playing my games you'll come to learn it for yourself but i don't have a moral to teach you um and so yeah that's one area where they're the complete opposite um 
and I think it's only through playing Nier Automata that I came to understand that you could let the player... I really came to really believe that you could let the player come to conclusions um, for themselves. Hmm. Selves. So with Xenogears, it changed your perception on how... Oh, sorry, no, with Nier, it changed your perception on, on how games could be, but with Xeno, uh, with Xenogears... It changed your perception on life, in a sense. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think so. Um, yeah, which is why it's had a slight, you know, a, a greater... Maybe if I'd have played Nier back... Maybe if Nier had been a thing when I was when I was 14, it might have spoken to me in a different way. Um, and I think, I think your favourite game is always going to have an element of rose-tintedness to it. Mm. Um... Whereas you know, near near is relatively recent. It's like two thousand and ten. Um, so maybe I was a bit more jaded by a little bit more jaded by then, um, a little bit more knowing about possibilities. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, what near showed me is how incredibly you can nail a feeling, um, and uh, it's yeah, like it's not. Near is not a great feeling. It's not meant to be a great feeling. It's meant to be, um, this is how the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Um, and you really feel that. Top three games ever. How would you rank them? Obviously, Xenogears at the top, but like, what would be the other two? Xenogears first, Near second. Third, I think I'd probably have to put Final Fantasy Seven, Even though I've said it's not my favourite Final Fantasy. It, it, just, it, it just opened your eyes in a sense. Yeah, I, in terms of yeah, in terms of what it did to shape uh, how I felt about games and also what I wanted to do with my life. You know, uh, it shaped my career. If I if I hadn't known that games could have that make you feel things and have these wonderful long stories, then I don't know if I'd ever wanted to become a game writer. You know. So I think I think it would have to be that, but it around the third place it gets very, it gets very like there's really not much to to put between a lot of the games I've mentioned, all of the games I've mentioned today. Obviously, firstly, self-promotion. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Ed Fear. Um, I talk a lot of shit. I would not be offended if you unfollow me. Um, a lot of people do. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm fine with that. Uh, I've come to be okay with my own stylings. Um, so uh, so as well as working at Mediatonic at the moment, um, I'm also a freelance uh, games writer. Um I work at Mediatonic part-time and then I, I, a couple of days a week I, I, I'm a freelance game writer, game designer. Um, so there's been a few things that I've worked on this year that are coming out very soon. So um, we've got Kitty Powers Love Life uh, is out in February. I, hope, I think that aiming for Valentine's Day. It's a wonderful kind of sim 
type game uh, hosted by Kitty Powers, the drag queen. Um, it's wonderful fun. Um, it's quite addictive. Uh, it's really funny and stupid. I did some mini game design on it. Um, so there's that. Uh, but the main thing I'm working on at the moment is um, the Swords of Ditto, uh, which is a game uh, being published by Devolver Digital. Um, and that's coming out at some early next year. I don't know when. My deadline is in eight days, and I'm panicking to hell and back about that. Um, but it's a wonderful um, little. Uh, uh, it's like a it's like a rogue like Zelda, basically, where it's instead of being one massive game, you play through these like mini, uh, like two hour uh, mini Zeldas, where you're kind of collecting gadgets and 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 then going on to fight a big boss. Um, but the big thing about it is that the world carries on whether you win or lose. So um, if you manage to defeat the great evil, then the world is happy for the next hundred years when you're resurrected uh, or you were well, not resurrected. You take control of a, another character. If you fail, then evil reigns over the land. The world gets darker. The people get more miserable. Um, and, uh, you know, the world. Uh, the buildings get more um, messed up and and there's more monsters around and, and all sorts of things change. So depending on how well you do, the game changes a lot. So I've been right. I've been writing on that for about seven months now. Um, there's a lot of random dialogue, a lot of really stupid and immature jokes. Um, but also it's uh, firstly, it's just incredibly fun to play. It's so, it feels so good. Uh, it feels so Zelda. Um, it's really replayable because you can play it loads and we do have an overarching storyline so you can do stuff that progresses a storyline over the over a couple of times as you play it and then there's a lot of backstory that you can collect in these like um, uh, well we call them ancient tablets but they're basically iPads (laughs) Uh, because again it's slightly like Nier it's set in a world in a kind of fantasy world after um, a more civilized, a more technological civilization. Uh, but yeah, there's a backstory. There's kind of a backstory as well that you can piece together as you play through um, about the history of this place and the meanings behind the people that you are seeing in it now. Um, so that's quite fun. Oh no, I should say it's more than quite fun. Really, it's very, very fun, uh, and it's gorgeous. Um, so that's the sort of ditto. Um, and yeah, that's going to be out early uh, 2018 on PS4 and PC. Uh, and that's the only ones I can talk about, I think. Hmm. So consider my shit hawked. Thanks for listening to my favourite game.
a podcast on PlayDiaries.com where people in the games industry talk of their favourite game. Yes, my favourite game, after a two-year hiatus away as a personal project of mine, is back. We're in the process of making a second attempt for Season 5, and we'll have more to share on that closer to the time. But until then, we have a few more episodes of these in the interim. If you want to listen to any future episodes of My Favourite Game early, as well as those from Press Play and the upcoming regular podcast, The Journal, before they go live on PlayDiaries.com, you can subscribe to our $4 tier on Patreon at patreon.com slash playdiaries. Next up, Alex Hutchinson on Exile. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.